Preaching this morning is uh, James White. Uh, James comes to us from balmy Phoenix. Didn't bring the weather with him uh, or didn't get that memo, but he is a pastor uh, at the Phoenix Reformed Baptist Church. He also uh, heads up an apologetics ministry called Alpha and Omega Ministries. That's A-O-Min as in A-O Ministry, A-A-O Ministries, uh, Alpha and Omega, uh, dot O-R-G. He's written uh, many books now that have been great, great um, helps to the Christian church, promoting the gospel, defending the gospel, uh, just great resources for us that many of us have enjoyed and benefited from. Uh, by now, he's done 130-ish um, formal moderated debates, again, helping the rest of us think through um, uh, Christian doctrines and truths and promoting them and defending them. Uh, I'm very thankful for the way God has used James White and the way he uses him to equip the rest of us. And he's going to come and preach this morning in First Peter. So let's welcome James White as he comes to preach. It is indeed an honor to be uh, with you this morning. And uh, in the earlier service, uh, Pat had said I had done hundreds of debates, so that's why he wanted to get the exact number this time. Uh, I have to be careful about that. I have, uh, over the years, had to be involved in a few controversies with folks who were basically claiming to do what I do, but they actually didn't do what I do. And so uh, we have to be very, very uh, careful in our, and accurate in our statements, uh, especially as we deal with those in the, in the church who might uh, seek to take advantage of us. Unfortunately, there are those who do that. I, um, I am hoping uh, you, can, you can pray toward the end that uh, when I get done here, we're going to open those doors and someone's going to prove to me that the sun does shine in Nebraska, uh, at least once in a while. Um, haven't really seen that yet, so I need. I would like some empirical proof uh, that that actually does happen, and that your average uh, high high temperature for today is around 70. Uh, I currently find that very difficult to believe. So, um, if you all would like to provide some proof of that, that would be a, a wonderful thing. Um, especially since we've already been into triple digits in Phoenix. We were around 101, 102 last week, and. Uh, uh, it's going to be that way until uh, probably sometime in October. So uh, I suppose I shouldn't be complaining, uh, except that we tried to get on those bicycles and get on out there on the roads, and uh, it's really not comfortable with that uh, little mist with blowing sideways uh, at 38 degrees. Not really, not really what I was uh, was I was expecting. But it's been a number of years since I was uh, here last. You were at a different. Uh, location at that time, and uh, I certainly looked different, and uh, Pat looked different. Uh, I think both of us were younger back then, probably, if you figure that out, And uh, but it's, uh, it's good to be back. I also get the opportunity of going up to uh, Massachusetts with the other half of the, uh, the Crazy Brothers, and uh, we're, we're right about uh, 50-50 right now. I think I've been up there three times and here three times, so uh, we'll just see who is going to try to take the lead uh, in the not-too-distant future. We'll see how that that works out. Turn with me, please, to uh, the book of First Peter. We live in a fascinating day. Uh, I don't know if any of you listen to it. I would like to highly recommend a podcast to you. It's not mine. Um, there is an excellent podcast. You can subscribe to it and uh, listen to it or just download them manually. But it's uh, 
the work of Dr. Albert Moeller, who is the president of Southern Seminary. He has a, a Monday through Friday podcast called The Briefing. And it is a, uh, I notice it's getting longer. It used to be about a 13 to 14 minute analysis of current events in the, in, from a Christian worldview. It's now gotten up to about uh, 17 minutes or so now uh, because there's just so much going on. But uh, Dr. Moeller very frequently uh, makes reference to the fact that we are experiencing, well, some people call it uh, progress, some people call it evolution, uh, I would call it moral and ethical collapse, to be perfectly honest with you, but a change in our society on such a fundamental level that the effects will be far-reaching, but I don't think anyone can yet really even tell what they are going to be. We live in a day where especially the younger generation has decided that those who came before them were basically clueless, had never thought through what the meaning of marriage was. Amazing. People for thousands of years had just hadn't seen the obvious about the fact that marriage really isn't a covenant relationship between a man and a woman that there isn't something different about the woman that changes the man or something different about the man that changes the woman. In fact, if we had just thought correctly, we would have seen that marriage is just a contractual relationship between any two people or in the not-too-distant future, three, four, five, six. And we don't want to be speciesists either. There are people who want to make sure that we don't engage in speciesism. So, you know, why should we limit it to just human beings anyways? I mean, let's just overthrow everything man has ever done and let's not worry what the consequences might be to that because, well, my favorite rock star says I should do that. And you may sense a small amount of sarcasm there, but I think it's well-deserved sarcasm when a generation is willing to basically say, well, the people before us didn't have iPhones and iPads and things like that. So what, what could they have known? They're, they're just the people who sacrificed themselves in World War II and places like that so that I might have all the stuff that I've got. What could they have known? It's an amazing day we live in. If you live in California, and obviously you all don't, but uh, if, you, um, if you did and your children were unfortunate enough to have to attend uh, public uh, instruction, in these days they would be forced to celebrate Harvey Milk Day. Yeah, by law, having to celebrate the life of an individual who promoted values directly contradictory to what is taught in Scripture, and certainly that the founding fathers of this nation would have found utterly uh, incomprehensible and reprehensible as far as that's concerned. We live in a day, quite honestly, where Isaiah 5 is being fulfilled. Isaiah chapter 5, you have the woe pronounced upon the people who will call that which is evil good and call that which is good evil. And that is what is happening, and unfortunately, it is being enshrined even in the very essence of the law of the land. And when you enshrine in the law of the land that which goes against God's purposes, that law loses its moral power, and the culture suffers as a result. God is not mocked. He will judge those people who have had great light, have had great witness of his truth, and then sin against that light. Look at history. It has happened over and over and over again. Great blessings bring great responsibilities. And what we're seeing, 
just think over the past, just over the past week. Past week, two weeks, we've had numerous examples where it is being made very, very clear that if you believe God has spoken, and if you believe that God has revealed what is right and wrong for man, what his purpose and creation of man, creation of marriage, creation of the genders, uh, what is what is right and wrong in our in our relationships with one another? Is if you believe God has actually spoken. In other words, if you believe what Jesus believed, because he believed all of that. Jesus had the highest view of Scripture. I don't understand anybody who calls himself a Christian says, "Well, I trust in Jesus for my salvation." But you know, his view of you know his his view of the Bible was just you know that's just what people believed back then. I don't really have to follow him on that. I've never understood that. I trust him to save my soul, but not in his view of Scripture. How, does, how does, exactly does that work? But if you believe what Scripture has said, what Jesus has taught, your voice is no longer welcome in the public sphere from the perspective of many people. Um, I happen to uh, see a quote uh, while I've been up here. Someone mentioned a quote to me from uh, the singer Linda Ronstadt, and she said in an interview recently that, it really bothers her uh, to think that there might be Republicans and Christians in her audience because uh, that really takes her joy out of singing for them. Really? Well, that's interesting. And we had, a, we had a, an ESPN analyst who was asked a question about homosexuality in light of a NBA player coming out as being a homosexual. And, and he said, well, as a Christian... I believe homosexuality is a sin against God and rebellion against Christ. Any sexual activity outside of the bond of marriage between a man and a woman is sinful before God. And, of course, immediately the cries, the pitchforks came out. We can't have someone like this persecuting these people in our land. In other words, what he had said was identified as hate speech. And we have a pastor, a pastor of a very large Calvary chapel, who is a part of the National Day of Prayer. What I thought prayer was actually communication with God. But anyways, it's a national day of prayer. And, and in the past, he has preached from Romans chapter 1 or 1 Corinthians chapter 6 or, or Leviticus or some text in the Bible that has revealed God's prohibition against certain behaviors, specifically homosexuality, and therefore he should not be involved with this. Well, I'm not sure what they're going to be doing at the day of prayer if you're embarrassed by what God has said about that. But that's where our society is today. And you and I live in this world. You and I hold jobs in this world. We interact with the people of the world. And no matter what you say, you are influenced by your recognition of what is being believed by the people around you. If you're in my generation, you may be looking behind you going, what's going on with these young folks? And you young folks might be going, yeah, I know. It's, it, you, ought to, you ought to be in our generation. You ought to be in the middle of, of all of this and to see just the 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 unanimity of many of these people in joining together and saying, we are going to embrace these things as good. And if you don't, your voice shouldn't be heard. A pressure is placed upon us as a result of this. No matter how you try to get around it, when you think about opening your mouth and speaking the truth, giving a testimony to the gospel, in the back of your mind, you know what kind of response you're going to get. And it's not like, it's not like it used to be. I mean, when I was younger, the, the primary objection that people would have would maybe be something like a self-righteous objection. You know, why are you telling me this? I'm a good person. I'm not as bad as somebody else, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
But now, what you hear from people is, who are you to judge? Who are, you're, you're promoting hate speech. You are promoting things that are, that are wrong. You are wrong to judge others as if repeating what God has said is, in fact, judging of others. And we all know there's only one verse that most people in our society have memorized. It used to be John 3.16. It isn't anymore. It's judge not, lest ye be judged. It's always fun to ask people, exactly where do you find that text? And you know what's around it? And you know that that same person said, judge with a righteous judgment? And you know, it's, it's fairly easy to respond to those things, but that is the one verse everybody uh, seems to know. Now, being involved in apologetics, there is one particular text in the Bible that apologists refer to because it's the only place where the term apologetics appears. In our language today, an apology is going around saying, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that, I, I, forgive me. That's not what apologetics is. Some people think that's what we should be doing. Uh, I'm really sorry about our unloving message or something like that, but that's not what apologetics is. It is, it is giving a reasoned defense there were people in the ancient world that would write entire books, their apologia, their, the defense of their worldview, defense of their philosophy, defense of their, their actions in life. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, we have that particular text. It's verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense, pros apologion, to give an apology to everyone who asks you, to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and with reverence. And so for many years, uh, as an apologist, you're asked to speak in a church. I've been doing this now for uh, 30 years. Alpha and Omega Ministries was founded in 1983. And uh, so you frequently will go to churches and you'll do sort of a little general thing on apologetics. And this will be the text you'll frequently look at. It wasn't until just the past few years that I actually really started to wrestle with this text in its context and to find out that it's much, much richer than I could ever have imagined it really was. There's much, much more here than I had ever really understood or had ever really presented. And the main thing for us to realize this morning, this evening we're going to do a little apologetic seminar, so this is sort of an introduction to that, is that these words are not addressed to, quote-unquote, apologists. I can't find what I do in the New Testament in the sense of office of apologist. I'm an elder in a church. All the elders in the church are supposed to be able to refute those who contradict. Okay. But this isn't addressed even to just the elders in the church. In fact, the context is addressed to all believers, and it's in reference to their everyday lives. It's in reference to the fact that when you live the Christian life, you are going to encounter the resistance of the world, and it's going to take different forms, and sometimes it's more virulent and violent than at other times, but the reality is that to walk under the Lordship of Christ, to walk in His footsteps, is to walk against the grain of the culture, and when you do so, you bring conviction to the culture. Remember in Hebrews chapter 11, it's Noah by his faithfulness, he convicted the world. By the fact that he was willing to listen to God and to do what God said, for all that time, patiently, he brought conviction to the world. He condemned the world by his actions, and the world doesn't want to be condemned. And so what you have today in so much of our society is you need to walk lockstep with us. We're the inclusive ones. We're not going to include you. 
Talk about hypocrisy. And you need to be like us and walk like us and talk like us because if you're different, then you bring conviction to us. You, you, you shine a light on the fact that we know that God exists, Romans chapter 1. We're suppressing that knowledge, and you're reminding us of what we're suppressing. We don't like that. And that's why hatred for the gospel is expressed all around the world in different ways. So these words are actually addressed to you. I don't care how old you are. I don't care if you're a retired person. I don't care if you're a teenager in high school or junior high school. Everywhere in between, no matter whether you're employed, unemployed, professional, educated, it doesn't matter. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, these words are addressed to you. Look back at verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience. So in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Now, hopefully, whenever you see an indication in your translation, and I hope your translation either uses italics, I've got the New American Standard here, uh, the Greek text I have uses italics, that's one of the most common ways of doing it, but whenever your translation or, or, or whatever gives you an indication that the Old Testament is being cited, I hope you take the time to really tune in there. Because remember in Luke chapter uh, 24, when uh, Jesus is resurrected and he, he meets with the disciples, what does he do? He opens their minds so that they might understand the testimony of the scriptures from the law and the prophets, how they all testified of Christ. And so when we see those apostles then quoting from the Old Testament, we need to sort of tune in because we're getting an indication of what was it that Jesus taught them during that time period? What, how did the apostles hear the testimony of the Old Testament to Jesus? And if you're looking at this particular text, at least in the New American Standard, they have the last half of verse 14 in all caps, or maybe italics in what you have or something like that, because it is a citation from the Old Testament. And if you look at it, you'll see that it's from Isaiah chapter 8. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 8, beginning at verse 6 with me, if you could, for just a moment. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 6 says, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoice in resin the son of Ramalia, now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria in all his glory, it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck, and the spread of his wings will fill the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel. Now, here's the historical background, and normally when you start talking about kings and Assyria, uh, our eyes roll back in our heads, and we sort of stop listening and start thinking about lunch and things like that. But we can't do this at this point. You need to hear what's being said, because notice the last phrase, will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. O Emmanuel. Now, what does Emmanuel mean? Well, Christmas wasn't that long ago, so you probably remember. Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. 
Well, this is Isaiah 8. Now, let's think about the book of Isaiah. What's in Isaiah chapter 7? A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child. Emmanuel. That's Isaiah 7. Now we're in Isaiah 8. What's in Isaiah 9? And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, another Messianic prophecy. And then in Isaiah chapter 11, you have the discussion of the righteous branch. And in that text, you have all the, again, passages that the New Testament writers quote over and over again of Christ. Seems this whole section of Isaiah is rich with messianic prophecies. And hence the apostles are saying, I'm going to exhort you from the same text that talks about the coming of the Messiah. We've now experienced this. And in light of his coming, this is how we should live. So it goes on after it says, O Emmanuel, be broken, O peoples, and be shattered, and give ear. I'm back in Isaiah 8, verse 9. And give ear, all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan that will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. Now, I could give you the background of this and the, the people who are trusting in Egypt and all the rest of that stuff. We don't have time for that. But notice the last phrase, for God is with us. Guess what? That's Emmanuel again. I'm really not sure why they didn't translate it the same way as they had just a few verses before, but the Hebrew is the same. For thus Yahweh, or as we slaughter it in English, Jehovah, spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all this people call a conspiracy. And then notice the next words, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. That's what Peter just quoted in 1 Peter 3. Then notice the very next section. It is Yahweh. Whenever you see L-O-R-D in caps in your English Bible translation, the underlying Hebrew word is Yahweh. We slaughter it as Jehovah. For it is Yahweh of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Does that sound familiar to anyone? What is Jesus described as by Paul? A stone of stumbling. Peter himself uses it. A rock of offense. And so they're, they're pulling from this very text to say, this is all fulfilled in Jesus. He is the one who fulfills these things. And so when we go back, to verses 12 and 13, you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. Peter quotes that. And then he continues in verse 15 with, it is Yahweh of hosts whom you should regard as holy. Now look back at Peter and notice that really, even in the New American Standard, it, the, the use of all caps should continue into verse 15. And in fact, in my Greek text, it does continue into verse 15. They recognize that verse 15 is a paraphrase of what you have there in Isaiah chapter 8. Now, why is this important? Verse 15 is a commandment to you and I. I don't know about you, but if the Bible contains a commandment for me, I'd sort of like to know how I can fulfill it. If God has preserved this scripture for me, and has brought me to this place this day. I want to be obedient to him. Here is a command. I want to know how to fulfill it. And the command is to hagiadzo, to sanctify, or the word used by Isaiah, to consider holy, 
Christ, the Greek term Christ means Messiah, the anointed one. So to treat as holy the Messiah as kurios. Or in the Greek, it's literally kurion, Lord, the Messiah, treat as holy. Now, who is being discussed back in Isaiah 8? Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh of hosts. The very same phraseology that Isaiah used in chapter 6. Remember what's in Isaiah 6? Isaiah's temple vision. He says, I saw the Lord lofty and lifted up. And it's, it's Yahweh, Yahweh of hosts, who then commissions Isaiah for his prophetic ministry. Remember, he has the angel come with the coal and, and takes his sin away and that, that temple vision, a tremendous, tremendous text of scripture, which ironically is used by John to identify Jesus as Yahweh in John 12, 41. So here you have Isaiah 8, talking about Yahweh, and yet when Peter makes application, he says, Isaiah said, treat Yahweh as holy. I'm telling you, treat the Lord Messiah as Yahweh, using the very same, same term in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The, the Jews wouldn't use the word Yahweh, and if you want to offend a Jewish person today, you actually pronounce the divine name, but it's a tradition that I, I don't think is biblical at all. I certainly don't think that that the New Testament writers would have followed that. And, and so, but they do use the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And when that word Yahweh appears, they use the word Lord. And so here you have Peter quoting from that text, and he's identifying Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, as Yahweh. So the first thing we need to understand if we are to treat this one as holy is who is it that we are treating as holy in our hearts? Who is it that we are setting apart? We need to understand who Jesus is. There are many, many people today in our land who will allow Jesus to be a prophet, allow Jesus to be a moral teacher, though I've honestly never met one of these people that said, oh, I, I love the morals of Jesus. I just don't, you know, I don't believe he's the son of God and things like that. I just love the morals of Jesus. Does that include the moral teaching where he said his enemies we brought before him and slain? Do you like that part too? Do you like the part where he said he's the only way of salvation? And pretty quickly you discover that they don't really like the moral teachings of Jesus. They like the edited down moral teachings of Jesus when they get rid of all the other moral teachings of Jesus they don't actually like. That's normally how it works. But there are a lot of people in our society, they still have a general respect for a vague, nebulous, cloudy Jesus. But Christians... Christians want to know who Jesus really was and who Jesus really is. And we have an amazing belief. We actually believe that Jesus created all things. Colossians chapter 1. For by him were all things created, whether in heaven and earth, visible or invisible, principalities, powers, dominions, or authorities. All things are created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things sunestican, they hold together. That's an amazing thing. We've got to understand that for people in the 21st century, that's foolishness. Utter foolishness. This huge universe held together by a guy who lived 2,000 years ago in uh, the backwaters of Palestine. Right. Sure. Makes lots of sense to me. And one of the things that it seems that the modern church stumbles over itself to do 
is to try to remove that stumbling block, to try to remove the foolishness of the message, to try to make it wise to people. The reality is Peter is saying that you need to know who it is that you are sanctifying. It is the Lord Messiah, the Lord who is the Messiah. He has entered into human flesh. The word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we are somehow to treat him as holy in our hearts. Now, the heart in our world is sort of the seat of emotion. And yes, there is emotion in the Christian faith, and and that's all supposed to be under the lordship of Christ as well. We are to be disciplined. We are not to be carried away by our emotions. But when they are disciplined, we can have great and wonderful feelings of God's presence and all those things. Believe it or not, even Scotsmen like myself have emotions. There are some people who have doubted that. When I wear my kilt and people call it a skirt, I'm hurt deeply inside. I really am. It's very culturally insensitive. Of course, if you've ever seen Braveheart, you see what we do to people who call it a skirt. So I just thought I'd mention that in case you were to slip. But... Some of us are not nearly as emotional. I didn't tell, tell that story in the first, uh, first hour, did I? Yeah, okay, yeah. Pat's a little embarrassed now. But um, <laughs> some of us are not nearly as emotionally expressive as others. But the heart, really, that's not what Peter's talking about. The heart is the, is the most personal, innermost space of, of mankind. It is the, the central aspect, the core of our being. In other words... At the most important part and place of who you are, you are to treat the Messiah, the Lord, the Messiah, as holy. That means that you are making a daily decision. It's not just a mountaintop experience. It's not just a one-time thing. You are making a daily decision to treat him as holy And therefore, you're to order everything else in life in light of that highest priority. And that's what the world demands you do not do. Because when you do that, you're going to live, act, dress, speak, respond to things in such a way as to bring conviction upon them you will reflect the very light of God upon them, and that's what you're not allowed to do. Sanctifying Christ as Lord in your heart means that you make this specific effort. You make a specific decision. This is not just an emotional state. This is something that you need to, this week, this day, Instead of just going, oh, that was interesting, and walking out the door, I would challenge you as a believer, think through this day. What does it mean for me in my life, where I am, in my marriage, my family, if I'm not married as a single person, whatever the situation God has me in, how is it that I can treat the Lord Messiah as holy in my heart? How does that impact every aspect of my life? How does that impact how I spend my money? How does that impact how I treat other people, how I treat my wife, how I treat my husband, how I discipline my children, how I respect my parents, how I deal with my neighbors, how I interact with the world, how I view art, politics, history? You're saying this is central to everything. Exactly. 
Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. In fact, the first response that should be ours to tragedy and difficulty to major world events should be as Christians. Now, yes, I am sort of vaguely talking about having a Christian worldview, but this is much more, the Christian worldview flows out of doing this. And so when things happen like bombings at marathons and things like that, we as believers should immediately respond in light of our commitment to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We should respond to these things looking at God's purpose throughout history and God's judgment upon a land that has spit in his face. And that should be our first response to anything is what does it mean in light of the lordship of Christ? That has to be our... That's, that's what be, having a Christian worldview is all about. Now, if you have a Christian worldview, if you sanctify Christ as Lord, recognizing we're talking about the creator of all things here, as Lord in our hearts, then you're going to respond differently and people are going to see it. And did you notice the words? I've had a few people point this out over the years. It says, always being ready to make a defense to whom? To the people you trip up on the sidewalk and uh, try to put a million-dollar tract in their hand? You know those million-dollar tracts, and they look like they're actually money, but they're really not. And, and, and by the way, I've had a number of, of servers, you know, waiters and waitresses and things like that, who really get bugged when you leave your tip, two ones and a million-dollar tract. It just doesn't really, you know go over too well with them. It looks like it's a big, big tip, and then they start reading it. And I'm not sure that it really helps to prejudice their mind a whole lot against the message. But be that as it may, uh, they've, a few people have pointed that out to me. Uh, that's the, that's, is that what we're talking about? When people see us and they see how we respond, there's a certain group of people who ask you to give an account for the hope that is in you. In other words, when you sanctify Christ as Lord, the result is hope. I was a hospital chaplain for a number of years. It was very, very, very difficult work. Very, very difficult work. Um, I wrote a book as a result, a book on grieving. Most people have n- are like, wait a minute, you wrote a book on Grieving? In fact, my publisher was even afraid to put my name on it because they're like, you're the right guy that writes the books on controversy. No one's going to think you have a heart uh, or anything like that. I mean, come on. You know, this is, you know, but they just hope people think it was a different James White and they went with it anyways. So, uh, and, and the book has done very, very well over the years. It, 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 I, I had to do the, the lost counseling sessions in this hospital for quite some time and I just, I just drew on, on all of that. And the one thing that I learned in that time period, and the hospital is located near a retirement community, so you'd frequently have women who would come in who had just become widows, and they may have been married for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And I could tell very, very quickly whether they were going to flourish and move forward, or if, as so often happens in those situations, the spouse dies very shortly after the other, whether they had hope whether they could look into the future and have hope that there is a purpose in their life. And when we encounter difficulties and tragedies and persecution and hardship, 
We respond, we should respond differently than the world. Our response should not be like the world. For example, that the Bible says that we are not to grieve as those who have no what? No hope. We are, we do grieve. God made us. If you love someone and you lose someone, you will grieve. But you're not to grieve as those who have no hope. And so there's supposed to be a re, a response. There's supposed to be a, a result in having Christ as Lord in the hearts in the way that we respond to things. And when other people see us, when they see that consistent kind of behavior, they see that patient endurance, they see Christian character in us, they ask us to give an account for the hope that is in you. And we are always to be ready to give that defense, to give that account, to be able to say, well, you know, the reason that I can... The reason that I can have hope in the face of that diagnosis I just got from the doctor, the news I just received of the death of a loved one, the tragedy that has taken place in my life, in the flood or the fire, whatever else it might be, the reason that I have hope in the midst of this is because this life is not all that I have. I have eternal life. I have been adopted in the family of God, and here's why, and here's how God did it, and here's how God has vindicated his justice in my life. In other words, a presentation of an understanding of the gospel. This is what gives me hope. And so, while apologetics, obviously, I happen to think is very important, and we live in a day where you are going to be called upon If you're going to be a Christian who opens your mouth, if you're going to be a Christian who speaks something in this society, if you're just not going to be a silent Christian who just sort of, you know, lives behind the monastery walls, you are going to receive persecution. You're going to receive resistance. That's going to happen. But the attitude that we are to bring into the giving of that defense is laid out for us right here. And one of the real tragedies is there are many people who love the battle, love to pull out their theological sword and get on their theological horse, whatever that looks like, and ride off to convert the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the atheists or whatever it might be. Go get the heretics or somebody, I don't know. That's very dangerous. It's very dangerous. I'll have young people come up to me after they watch a debate and, oh, they want to get involved. They want to know how they can do what I do. And I normally take a big old bucket of cold water and dump it on their head. Not literally, for those of you who have a literal hermeneutic. uh, I didn't really mean that that way. But I do everything I can to put the fire out. Because if I can put the fire out, it's it's a man-made fire in the first place. And I try to let them know that they're not seeing all of the years of preparation and everything else that went into that, and they need to recognize that they've got somewhat of an imbalanced view of what's actually going on uh, behind the scenes in the preparation for that debate and, and even in the, in the prosecution of that debate. But the point is that there are people that go out there, and when you get involved in apologetics, there's a lot of dangers. There's a lot of people that ego can become a real important thing to, to people in that type of situation. And that's why I'm glad I'm a part of the church. I teach in the church. I teach 
uh, teach Sunday school regularly at, uh, at my church. I'm not just off gallivanting around every weekend. Um, there's a number of weekends that I am, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm involved in the church. There's dangers out there. And the real action of apologetics is going to be done not by me. I don't know how long I'm going to have the freedom to do what I do. As it is, I'm going up to Canada in, in, uh, in October, and I'll be perfectly honest with you. There are some things that I've written that could get me in trouble in Canada. I wonder when the doors are going to close, when, when the media is just not even going to be open to any type of presentation of the gospel at all. I, I could certainly see that happening. And so who really has to do apologetics? It's you. This isn't addressed to the elders of the church. Yeah, they have to do it. It's you. You're the ones, each one of you, in your lives that have to give a reason for the hope that's within you. And yes, I can help to equip you on the factual side of things, the argument side of things, the reality side of things, as far as the history of the text, the New Testament, the beliefs of other people, or all the rest of that kind of stuff. But the internal preparation of treating the Lord Messiah as holy in your hearts, that's up to you and the Spirit of God. That's what you've got to do first. And so my challenge to you is, in your life, in this coming week, in your job, in your family, in the relationships you have with people in your neighborhood, what will it mean to you, practically, in reality, to treat the Lord Messiah as holy, as different, as completely other, as spotless, as, as holy in your heart? So that, that becomes the guiding principle through which everything else is channeled. What's that going to mean? I can't answer that for you. Because God puts us all in completely different places. But what the text is saying is this is a command to each one of us. And the Apostle Peter is saying, see, the Old Testament told us he was coming. Now he has come as those of us who follow him, the fulfillment of all of the prophets. How then are we to live? One of the results is, well, you're to give an account for the hope that's within you yet you're to do so with gentleness and reverence. We cannot return the hatred of the world even when it's thrown in our face. And that takes firm conviction, a conviction that you're standing before God in His sight, that you have, as it's said many times, an audience of one, and that your only concern is being pleasing to Him. So I would challenge you, think about this text. Think about what it would mean to you practically this coming week to sanctify the Lord Messiah as holy in your hearts. Let's pray together. Indeed, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, the preservation of it, and the fact that this day as we read it, just as our Lord and Savior taught us, you are speaking to us by your spirit. You bring conviction. And Lord, we need to know what it means to treat you as holy in our hearts. We need to know what it means to live as your servants in this day and age when there is so much hatred toward your truth. And Lord, we need your spirit to encourage us and to give us strength that we might be 
salt and light. Salt and light, that which preserves and that which guides. Use us in that way to your honor and glory. We pray in Christ's name.